Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. I'm Jeremy Cliff in Berlin. I'm Emily Tampkin in Washington, D.C. It's Friday, the 29th of January. You're listening to World Review, The New Statesman. Thank you for joining us. So, Emily, how goes the Biden era so far? The Biden era is it's off to, to a start. You know, I think what we've seen so far is Biden trying to undo some of what he and those who voted for him saw as the damage that Trump has done through executive order. We're still seeing negotiations in Congress. And there's kind of this back and forth now where Republicans say, well, if you, you know, if you do things with 50 votes, or if your executive order lifting the ban on transgender people serving in the armed forces, that that that's not unity. So I think we're, we're now at this point where it's like, well, does the country come together through policy that's as unhurtful to as many people as possible? Or does unity mean Biden compromising with the Republicans by coming over to them? Yeah. That's, I think, where we are. I hadn't entirely appreciated quite how many of the bad things that Trump had done, he'd done by executive order, and that are therefore so easily reversible by a president of a different complexion. Well, as Ted Cruz said when he was running for president, if you live by the pen, you die by the pen, and my pen has an eraser. <laughs> Indeed. Just a, a classic Ted Cruz zinger. Good to see Joe Biden working that eraser. Things are fine in Berlin. Uh, Well, they're not that fine. The specter of the new variant, we're not supposed to call it the British variant, but the new variant of the coronavirus is looming down on Germany, although the infection rates here are currently falling. Question is how long they'll do that. And a vaccine war is breaking out. Love to have one of those in the EU between the UK and the authorities in Brussels about who ordered what vaccines when and under what conditions. I think it's a subject we're going to need to come back to in a separate podcast, but safe to say it's getting ugly and it might get uglier. Anyway, with that, what's your moment of the week been? Because we're going to discuss the United States throughout this podcast, my moment of the week comes to us from India. I have spoken on this podcast before about the protest by the farmers, largely from Punjab, against changes that they feel would kind of put them at the mercy of of large corporations, but that the government says are necessary to kind of modernize the agricultural sector. So this week, at least one protester was killed, hundreds of police officers were injured after thousands of farmers, some in tractors, took to the streets of of Delhi. I think, again, you know, again, I know I've spoken about the story before, but it's it's not going away. And what the government is saying is that we're doing the right thing. We're, we're sticking to it. What critics of Modi's government are saying is that you messed with the farmers, yeah. right? Like it, it didn't matter when you, not that it didn't matter, but the, the mobilization on the street kind of went away when you 
threatened to take away Muslim citizenship or when you called intellectuals anti-national, that this was a line that you should not have crossed. We will see if that proves to be true. What is your moment of the week? My moment of the week is that as we speak, that is on Friday, uh, yesterday, a probe team from the World Health Organization exited its quarantine in Wuhan. And this is a team that was sent to investigate the origins of the coronavirus outbreak, obviously a massive subject for people around the world, and one with some bearing on the subject that we're going to discuss with our guest on the podcast this week. And they arrived actually on the 14th of January, and then spent two weeks on quarantine, increasingly the way that one has to travel the world these days. And they left that quarantine on Thursday. So as I say, the day before we record this, so they're now out of quarantine and they can start their on-the-ground investigations. And it's going to be very interesting to see, first of all, what they uncover about the roots of the, the virus, what it has to do with the food market, where the blame was originally laid, whether anything to do with Chinese government labs has to come into question. Some have suggested that's a factor outside of China. And it's going to be also very interesting to see how the world reacts to their, their findings, because this is, of course, a very political subject. Anyway, with that, I would suggest we move on to our main conversation. And why don't you introduce our guest? I will, because our main conversation is connected to all of this. I'm thrilled that this week we have with us on the podcast, Ray Zong, who is Program Associate at the Wilson Center's China Institute, or the Kissinger Institute on China and the United States. Ray Zong, thank you so much for being with us today. Yeah, happy to join in on this conversation. So it's a it's a heavy subject that we have in front of us this week. I guess unlike every week where we talk about the light happenings of world affairs, you know, it's been roughly a year, I guess, since the world became aware of the virus in Wuhan. And before we speak about sort of then and now, could you reflect? I remember I am an avid Twitter follower of yours, and I remember that you had Stand with Wuhan as your name on Twitter at the beginning. And it, it just it seems like a year ago, the world kind of thought of this as not as not our problem, right? It was the problem of this one part of China. Looking back, how wrong was our reaction, I guess? How, how great was the gulf between what was happening in Wuhan a year ago and the way it was perceived by us here in DC or people in London or in Berlin? That's a great question, Emily. Back in winter of 2020, when I started really monitoring COVID-19 in China, it, it was obvious from the outset that it wasn't just a health crisis, but also an issue that was deeply linked to how information spreads in China and how politics works in China. And one of my rules of thumb for looking at China, China politics is that a lot of things really, really start at the domestic level. The government of China has the most control and leverage at the domestic level. And even if a problem has international implications, the story of what's happening at really, really local levels is critical. And in the case of Wuhan, you had officials placing political stability or political prestige of making sure that New Year celebrations went off without any problems. And so you had whistleblower doctors effectively silenced for a while, including the late Dr. Li Wenliang. And as a result, the domestic messaging of COVID-19 was delayed. As a result, Wuhan had to go on lockdown for a total of 76 days. And the rest of China also had to scramble to effectively quarantine and trace the rapidly spreading disease. 
The international community, I think, really focused on trying to diagnose the Chineseness of the problem from wet markets to the Chinese Communist Party government allowing people to travel for the holidays, so on and so forth. And one year later, I think the lessons that have been learned from Wuhan that haven't stuck has been, you know, encouraging people to stay home in a way that's really worked, encouraging mask wearing and using policy to incentivize or in China's rather extreme case, disciplining people into behaving a certain way. A quick follow up on that. I just want to speak about what you call our, our fixation with the, the Chinese-ness of the problem. You're family is from Wuhan. So I, I would imagine that you don't have the same kind of bias approaching the issue. But if you indeed do think it's biased, but, but how much of our kind of early reaction to the virus do you think was because of the whiteness of the policy class here in the States or of, of just seeing it as something that was removed from us in a way that it wasn't, say, from, from you? Well, critics of China are partially right in that you know, they did delay the release of information related to COVID and people were silenced. Mm-hmm. However, the United States learned of the highly transmissible, and this is really key, It's we learned that it was transmissible from person to person. So it wasn't just animal to person. Around the same time as South Korea and New Zealand and other states that were able to really put large-scale, entirety-of-government-scale policies in place and thus tamp down the infection rates and death rates. And this is, of course, accounting for population size. But in terms of percentages in infections and deaths, South, South Korea, Taiwan, Thailand, Vietnam... New Zealand, they had the same information playing field as the United States and decided to go a different policy path. I think that's a good point. You can only get so far with the argument that other countries didn't have enough time to prepare. Can you give us a sense from talking to your relatives or contacts in Wuhan and elsewhere in China of the situation on the ground? What is life like, particularly in Wuhan these days, as the city where this all began, but also in China generally. I mean, my sense from what I read and what I see is that life has to some extent returned to normal. Is is that fair? Well, if you are a family with children in Wuhan, those children will be going to school without any concerns. Mask wearing is still very much encouraged and domestic spread of COVID-19 is still something that the Chinese government is highly sensitive about. They're actually encouraging migrant workers who are rural Chinese working in cities to not travel back home for the upcoming New Year holidays. So this is something that's still definitely something that the government is sensitive about. However, dining out, schools, and in-person events are not as big a deal in China as they are maybe in the US, the UK and Europe. That's interesting. And what about the political picture? Because obviously, this is the year of the 100th anniversary of the 
formation of the Chinese Communist Party, which I believe is being commemorated on the 1st of July. And obviously, that's a big moment, partly because Xi Jinping and the, and the government have set that as a, as a deadline for various goals to do with economic development and poverty reduction. So a lot of interest around that. But more broadly, how's the atmosphere in the country? I mean, seen from the West, it has done very well partly for the reasons that we've discussed already. Is that how things are seen within China? Has this has this produced a rallying of support for the government? Is there a sense that China's done really well out of this? That's a great question. I would say that China's one of China's best successes in handling COVID-19 has been the political success. What it's able to present to the public has bolstered political confidence in Xi Jinping and his Chinese Communist Party. This is obviously not without cost. There's a lot of people that if they don't necessarily have a narrative that fits the grain of the party narrative, then they tend to have more trouble getting those stories out. So people who are mourning certain types of deaths under the Wuhan lockdown, Dr. Li Wenliang's widow is basically watched like a hawk and will not really say just, just anything. Just that's the widow of the, the doctor who called out or brought to the attention of the world the dangers of the virus early on. Is that right? Yes. He sent a message in a WeChat messaging group that some of his patients, he was an eye doctor, were developing symptoms. But he passed away from covid he was declared a martyr, which means he's protected by certain speech laws in China. And now his widow is more or less watched like a hawk to just say, you know, he was a martyr, he was a party member, he loved his country, and that's it. So this, this type of political narrative is, is something that the CCP likes to keep relatively airtight and relatively positive tone. It's something that China wants to bill as a triumph. And like I said earlier, because they're able to control and use policy in the domestic space most effectively, that's the type of policy discourse that goes on in the domestic space. I will say, though, that one really interesting thing that I've observed is people have used the late Dr. Lee's Weibo wall. So basically like a social media page that he used up until his death. People sometimes, you know, leave messages saying like, Dr. Lee, I graduated from school today or Dr. Lee, I hope, you know, you're, you're resting well. Sometimes in subtle ways, people memorialize what has happened during COVID, but there's definitely a line in the sand that's been drawn politically. Do you think that tends to be younger Chinese people? Because, I mean, a related question was, obviously, there's this big anniversary coming up. One assumes there'll be a certain amount of triumphalism. And then you have also a, a younger generation in China that has grown up and has only known China after Deng Xiaoping began his report reforms, that only has only known a China with a strong degree of market capitalism. And I'd be fascinated to know how particularly that younger generation relates to the Communist Party, relates to questions of its legitimacy or questions of how it handled crises like the COVID crisis. Can you reflect on that at all? So the political education of younger Chinese is is definitely has a stronger touch by the CCP after Deng. 
Xi Jinping has actually been very, very proactive in integrating Xi Jinping thought, integrating party loyalty and political loyalty to China's official definitions of sovereignty, of the political system, so on and so forth. There's a lot of youth targeted political education. So on that front, this is something that the government watches very carefully. However, when it comes to issues of the economy, of working in China, there, there is some burnout that is being felt by younger generations. Obviously, people who are working service jobs or in the Chinese gig economy are feeling that small p political pressure. But also tech workers, there's this term called 996, clock in at nine, clock out at nine, work six days a week. That describes some of the burnout in China's larger tech companies. And this is something that younger people are starting to get more and more fed up with. That's actually how, you know, recently publicly censured Ant Financial CEO Jack Ma, he actually fell out of popularity with younger Chinese people for, for that reason. This is the founder of Alibaba, right? Which is the sort of Chinese Amazon. Yeah, it's, it's Chinese Amazon from uh, e-commerce to the AI and big data yeah. tech portfolios. So he, yeah. he fell out of popularity with younger folks because he was saying, oh, you know, 996 is, is great. You know, if you don't like it, like, you don't have to do it. Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to The New Statesman on digital, in print, or both from as little as one pound a week at newstatesman.com slash subscribe. That's just $2 a week in America. So with this as the domestic backdrop, you know, we've spoken a lot here on the World Review and, and just in general in the United States, this is a hot topic of conversation, how U.S. policy will or will not change with respect to China under Biden. But I'm curious to hear your thoughts on how, if at all, Chinese policy to the U.S. will change now that there's a new president. I think COVID especially, but also politics under the Trump administration has kind of affirmed the political logic that China works under. There hasn't been any indication that Xi's government has been dissuaded from taking any political decisions. It hasn't really been unmoored. Certainly, the COVID response of the United States has been something that China has pointed to in saying, do you have credibility when this is the policy results of your system? Under Biden, what we've been seeing coming out of the Chinese foreign ministry is that they've reiterated a lot of these red lines of sovereignty that they think the United States is not supposed to cross Hong Kong, Xinjiang, China's approach to Taiwan. These topics are reiterated really publicly. They're reiterated repeatedly as topics that the United States should not try to push too hard on because China considers them internal affairs. The sort of consensus in Washington is that Biden will continue to take a tough line, a hawkish line on China, right? That this will not be the vice president Biden that we saw in the Obama years, but that this is a Biden who will not necessarily try to work with China as the Obama administration did, but will do so differently 
than Trump, right? So whereas with Trump, it was sort of sporadic, not particularly concerned with human rights and a real go it alone approach, the Biden administration will work with allies, will cite human rights, etc. What do you think of that? Certainly the multilateral efforts of the Biden administration has been something that they've been eager to communicate right out the gate with the remarks by Ambassador Green, with Secretary of State Blinken's confirmation hearing and early State Department remarks. This multilateral approach was something that Biden pushed throughout the campaign period of the 2020 elections. At the same time, I think the United States-China relationship is firmly rooted in, I think, a competitive element, Mm -hmm. both by the United States policy interests, but also by Chinese policy interests. When the trade war happened with the United States levying tariffs on China, this was something of a wake-up call to the Chinese government. And as a result, they pushed more resources into making tech sector firms, but also other firms, more trade war proof and attempts to try to make it more self-sufficient in case they had to rely on the United States less. How likely do you think it is that we'll see some sort of flare up in relations between the US and China, either over technology, obviously, there's been a kind of growing tension about that, or a, a sort of more hard power related subject like Taiwan, or the South China Sea, or even the Indian Ocean, you know, these spheres where the US and its allies are contesting Chinese power. Do you think there's some point at which the tensions between the two will come to a head in that way? Or do you see this more as a sort of simmering competition that that might kind of outlast the current presidential term? Well, I, it's certainly not something that's going to outlast Xi, because I don't know when Xi Jinping is going to leave office as he has removed term limits for himself. <laughs> so to answer your question, I think At the moment, all indications are that this is something that neither side wants to erupt because if it comes to hard power competition and uh, military to military, it's it's something that costs a lot to both China and the United States, which neither side really wants to be the instigator. Having said that, China has also become increasingly hawkish on the Taiwan Strait, on its relations with Australia. Certainly, the last year has also seen tensions with India rise over border clashes. And so the competitive aspect of the United States-China relationship, it's certainly multilateral, as are cooperative opportunities. Okay, well, that brings us quite nicely on to our next section, which we like to call Emily. You ask us. My delivery of that has gotten good, listeners. I think we all have to admit that to ourselves. Okay, so we have a listener question. It's from Matt from Bristol. How will the EU and the UK fit into Biden's policy towards China? Ray, would you like to take Matt from Bristol's question first? Certainly. 
So the EU specifically has just inked a large investment deal with China that covers manufacturing, agriculture, emerging technology such as robotics, all big money makers. As for the UK, it's also trying to balance economic interests, especially after Brexit, and security. The UK has looked into the usage of Huawei technology in building its telecommunications infrastructure, but it's also had a lot of concerns over, you know, using Huawei technology. Does it compromise the data that telecommunications equipment has? And so this is a very critical moment. And this is a critical moment that the Chinese foreign ministry is well aware of. So from the US angle, if it starts to press human rights or China periphery politics, I can't speak for EU and UK government perspectives, but it's more likely than before that those issues might be put on the back burner. If the United States starts pushing harder on Xinjiang, which it might, what would be the UK and EU message? So it's a very roundabout way of saying we will have follow-up questions to the latest steps in the UK and EU's economic relationship with China. On that, I mean, the deal that the EU did with with China in the dying days of 2020 included a stipulation that China would make, as it said, continued and sustained efforts to ratify international conventions on banned forced labour. And of course, that obviously had Xinjiang and the treatment of the Uyghurs very much in its sights. And the criticism of the EU-China trade deal has focused heavily on that in particular. And I think it's been directed particularly at Germany, obviously, sitting here in Berlin. This is a perspective that I kind of uh, hear a lot about, you know, that Germany of all countries needs to take seriously the treatment of the Uyghurs. We've seen Anthony Blinken, the new US Secretary of State, essentially say that he stands by Mike Pompeo's designation of what's going on in, in Xinjiang as, as a genocide. And so obviously that that reverberates particularly in, in Europe with this kind of this supposed commitment to human rights. Do you think it's realistic to hope that the EU-China trade deal will give the EU the leverage to extract progress on that front? It's hard to say because pressure on China, on Xinjiang, has more or less hit a wall over the last couple of years because China, as I commented before, considers it an internal affair. Thus, it's been receptive Maybe to economic pressure, but generally not so much diplomatic pressure. Do you think there's there's anything that the likes of the US or the EU or the UK could do to really exert pressure that would make a difference there? As of right now, one of the questions that is on the horizon is the 2022 Winter Olympics. Uyghur diaspora and dissidents abroad have been calling for a boycott. So the Biden administration's messaging on the Winter Games is probably something to watch from Washington. I guess one more on that, which is to what extent do you think that if there is to be pressure on China uh, over its treatment of, of the Uyghurs, that it will come from governments? And to what extent will it come from businesses? I'm thinking here in Washington of how major companies lobbied to block a bill that would have banned imports from, from Xinjiang made with forced labor. It's also something, by the way, very relevant with regards to Germany, of course, a lot of Germans mm-hmm. are invested in that, that area. Yeah, and I read an article the other day that the the United States actually 
I think might have increased imports that have used forced labor. So this gets to one of the core problems of the U.S.-China supply chain. They're intertwined and therefore our problems are intertwined. And so business interests, they really also have to face this type of, you know, choice that governments also face. It's like, is it economic performance and profitability that's the priority or the labor conditions in which their goods and services are are made. And given the nature of these forced labor factories and production facilities, they're not just making, I think ketchup is one major export or cotton. They're also making PPE. So some of these goods that are being made, it's posing questions of profitability, and sometimes, I guess, in the case of PPE, necessity over the labor conditions that are now expanding throughout Chinese manufacturing facilities, not just in Xinjiang, but we're also seeing indications that laborers are being sent elsewhere. So just one final question. I sometimes ask our guests this, and some reject it as being far too generalizing, so feel free to do that. But on the whole, would you say you're optimistic or pessimistic about relations between, let's be specific, let's say between the US and China? How do you rate those, uh, you know, looking ahead to the next 10 or 20 years? I generally have the most hope in US-China people-to-people relations. So in, you know, educational, in sometimes, you know, in track two, so like think tank to think tank, institution to institution, those conversations generally have been a little more fruitful because they're removed from the people making the policy directly. As for track one, they do seem very icy at the moment. I don't know what's going to break that impasse. It was good of you not to reject Jeremy's uh, optimism outright, (laughs) as so many do on this podcast. Okay, so before we let you go, as we do every week, we are going to close with each sharing what in this world we will be observing or watching next week. And our guest always goes first. So what will you be looking ahead to in the week to come? So I'm not usually a film festival buff, but I just saw that documentarian Nanfu Wong, who made the excellent movie uh, One Child Nation, is releasing a film at Sundance called In the Same Breath. It's going to be Produced by HBO, early screenings. Unfortunately, I don't. I'm not going to see it until it gets out in HBO streaming later this year. But it's on the information environment inside Wuhan. Her and Ao Wu are two Chinese-born documentary makers. Wu's documentary "76 Days" is already out, but the amount of you know video and photography, film and journalism. Is, is something to really reflect on as we pass the one-year anniversary of the Wuhan lockdown. That is a great moment ahead. I don't think we've ever had a film before as a, a moment of the week to come. My moment is not as good. Trump's impeachment trial is scheduled to begin the week of February 8th, which is not next week. But next week, I will be watching the way in which Republicans kind of signal and position themselves against conviction. You know, we had 45 Republican senators vote that impeaching a president who is no longer in office is unconstitutional, which it is not. This past week, we had House Minority Leader, so the the top ranking Republican in in the House, Kevin McCarthy, go to meet Trump at Mar-a-Lago. We had Republican Senator Barrasso say that, well, you don't need to convict him to hold him accountable. So I think 
I will be watching in the week ahead how Republicans walk this line between pretending that this thing that they all came out and said, oh, this was awful. Oh, how could he do this? That they're that they're doing a single thing about it while continuing to placate Trump, whose voters they obviously still think they need and whose project they are clearly uh, not disinterested in pursuing further. Jeremy, what's your moment? My moment is only just in the next week because it's going to be tomorrow as we record this, so on Saturday the 30th of January. But I'll be paying attention to the second weekend of protests across Russia following the arrest of Alexei Navalny, the opposition campaigner following his return to Russia from Germany earlier this month as we record this, soon to be last month. The protests last weekend were really impressive in their size and in their determination. And a lot of Russian cities are preparing for another day of protest tomorrow. Um, Navalny himself has, has issued a letter in which he said uh, they can't put everyone in jail. So encouraging his, his supporters to take to, to the streets again. And this is being read, by the way, as as a nod to the protests in Belarus last year, which, which have taken place weekend after weekend after weekend. And clearly that's the direction he wants this to go in as a sort of regular feature of the of the of the Russian political week where his supporters take to the streets and make their voices heard so I'll be paying attention to that and also watching to see how this then develops over the over the course of the next months with as we've discussed before Duma elections awaiting later this this year so I'll be looking out for that with that all that is left is for us to thank our guest Rezong, program associate at the Wilson Center's Kissinger Institute on China and the United States. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks so much. It's been it's been really interesting. And a reminder that our World Review newsletter is now twice weekly. We have a second Monday edition now going out every Monday morning, as the name implies, written by Ido Fock, our international correspondent and sometime World Review podcast co-host. So I'd strongly recommend signing up to that as soon as you hear this to get Monday's edition telling you what's happening in the world in the weekend. And as always, if you have enjoyed this podcast, we encourage you to tell your friends, cousins, acquaintances and haters about it. Like, subscribe, and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. Our producer has been Nick Hilton. Thank you for listening, and until next week. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to 
When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. Hello, Freddie here. I want to tell you about a new way you can support the New Statesman's independent journalism. Every morning I send out Morning Call, our daily newsletter covering everything you need to know about British politics. It's free to sign up, plus for just £3 a month, you'll get a recommended daily piece of ours sent to you in full, plus exclusive polling analysis from Ben Walker, a weekly update from Will Dunn, and our featured piece on Sundays. If you enjoy this podcast, you'll love Morning Call. Head to morningcall.substack.com and subscribe now.